The song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting and slightly sentimental episode today, Dave. Yeah, definitely. I think we'll be talking about some games that are near and dear to both of our hearts, but I think it's also a series where we kind of jumped on the train at different stations, so it should be a a rich and complimentary discussion. Yeah, and you actually, uh, we were talking about Fallout, of course, which just came out on Wednesday, the new edition, uh, Fallout 76. But you were the one that introduced me to the Fallout series with Fallout 3, which was the first one that really, uh, as I understand it, and we'll get into that in a couple minutes, um, one and two were much more um, text-based or not as open world, correct? Or am I totally wrong on that? So uh, the the first two games were really similar to like Baldur's Gate is another ser- uh, PC game series I'll compare them to. If people know that, Baldur's Gate 2, for my money, the best PC game ever made, write it down. Uh, anyway, but yeah, definitely way more text-based, way more kind of Dungeons and Dragons simulatory. Um, you know, way more of a top-down view, whereas starting with three, they were first-person shooters. I mean, that was a big thing. For those who don't know, uh, somehow, uh, Fallout is a series of games that takes place based on uh, a nuclear holocaust, essentially, uh, involving usually, I believe, China blowing the shit out of us. And basically what happens is whatever version of the game you're playing, you're one of the people who comes out after the Great War is usually what it's referred to. And your job is to either survive in the Wasteland, which is why we picked the Survivor Series last week. Or um, in the case of the new one, uh, Fallout 76, you were trying to rebuild. You're one of the first people out of the vault who's trying to rebuild society. But in general, the games are... Uh, just a post-apocalyptic RPG. The game is really heavily influenced by the kind of design and culture of the 1950s and early 60s. So it's this kind of creepy mixture of this post-apocalyptic future of the 2200s and also kind of the bombed-out shell of what's remaining from the 1950s and 60s. I remember the commercial for uh, Fallout 3 where they were playing the I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire song through the kind of creaky tube radio just a really creepy captivating amazing commercial and i went out and i bought the game the second i saw it it's it's not just an rpg or a dungeons and dragons simulator or a first person shooter layered on top of an rpg um it really truly is a it's almost its own specific kind of genre of science fiction game and very much this kind of like nuclear age uh, rocket age post-apocalyptic science fiction game yeah, in the Fallout universe, and we're not going to get... I mean, we're going to talk a lot about Fallout and all the different games, but uh, the the mythos, I guess you would call it, of the Fallout universe is that they, instead of developing microprocessors, developed nuclear energy. Uh, they That's like where there's a split. So they have a lot more advanced nuclear technology and energy. So they have... Um, floating robots and stuff like that and things are much more can be much more jet propelled and propelled and some of the technology is extremely advanced but they also have like cathode ray tube uh tvs and things like that so it's this weird dichotomy between that like you said that that jet that pre-jet age the nuclear age that 1940s late uh mid 1940s to uh early 1960s basically when the russians get the bomb that kind of like glowing i pardon the pun uh idea of america being specifically destroyed uh by our own hubris essentially the the hubris of america is a huge overarching theme like in all the games like 
even in this kind of post-apocalyptic world where things have been reset to some degree, they still reflect the best and worst aspects of American culture always. So for the first two games, how exactly does... Does it work the same way as the latter three games where uh, you have a character that starts out and you kind of build him him or her up over a period of time into this kind of like superhero? Or is it much more, um, I, I'm trying to think of the word, balance isn't quite uh, governed. It's more governed in terms of like how super powerful you can make your character. Or does the first two games also have that, thing where your guy where there's this transition between trying to survive in this post-apocalyptic universe to the point where you're just kind of taking over the post-apocalyptic universe and in the latter games it's kind of reflected in the dialogue and stuff like that but uh is that the case in the first two or is there a slight is it much more like you're just trying to survive so actually the, the first two games aren't really survival games they're more kind of linear traditional save the world rpgs so in the newer games, you're usually like leaving the vault and kind of journeying out to start a new life in the open world. Whereas in the first two games, the goal is to leave the vault, you know, to get the talisman and to bring it back, so to speak, to use some hack Joseph Campbell language. And I will say that I remember them being really, really difficult out of the shoot. Um, there was definitely a pretty steep learning curve in that every decision you made mattered. And if you screwed up crucial things early in the game, you like really made stuff hard on yourself. But, uh, but I definitely think that it was a more contained and more limited world, definitely, than the newer games. There was a linear storyline that involved in the first one. You specifically have to go find fresh water, I think it is, or a water purification chip. And in the second one, you need to, to get this, like, uh, once again, this like magic briefcase that is going to create a new Garden of Eden. In the latter... Three, I guess you'd say three, yeah, because Fallout New Vegas, which is actually probably my favorite out of the the modern bunch. So about four, so four, yeah. So Fallout 3, Fallout New Vegas, Fallout 4, and now Fallout 76 uh, all kind of have this weird thing. And it's, I guess, I like to call it the John Cena problem, where... They go from this scratch. You, you, you can't see the game. Do you keep dying because you can't see what's going yeah, on? Yeah, it's very gl notoriously glitchy, and it just you can't see it. They're just <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, where the character that you are controlling, who is usually known as like the lone survivor or the sole survivor, not the sole survivor. That's Survivor Series. The sole survivor. They end up going from this scrappy underdog where you're just trying to do anything you can to survive and you're always kind of existing in this radiated state of like having to eat shitty things that are irradiated and it's making you sick. You're having to drink dirty water, having to shoot people with guns you've made out of pipes. You go from like rapper John Cena or even ruthless aggression John Cena to like super Cena. Understanding that change like living through it really helped me understand what was happening with John Cena. Why A, people hated him and B, like how hard that is to avoid when an entire narrative is constructed around a single character who has to survive. Like the goal is for that person to win. And I think something like John Cena, you see a lot of parallels between like the overpoweredness and how that can ruin the fun once it gets past a certain point, but how that's almost required if the end goal is to have that 
that person win every single encounter they they come up against. Yeah, I think that's typically why RPGs don't have cheat codes. Like back in the day, you could use like a game genie maybe or a game shark or something. But like generally RPGs don't have like codes that let you get too strong too fast because like there's like there's no invincibility code or whatever. It's not like Doom because there's not much to the game if there isn't the threat of losing. Like the battles being competitive is kind of important to an RPG being really juicy and really engaging, I think. There, 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 there has to be that balance. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it can't be Final Fantasy 1 where you need to, like, grind freaking 10 levels walking around two tiles around the first town and you'll die, you know, the regular enemies in the first dungeon will kill you. It's not, it doesn't, have, it shouldn't be like that. But at the same time, you know, you, you can't get too overpowered or, or the game just kind of falls apart because when the combat's not challenging that takes a lot of the fun out of the game in my opinion. Yeah, and it's what happens is that you complete these missions because you're good at video games, basically, that you shouldn't really be able to, kind of. And it advances the storyline a little too much. Again, John Cena beating JBL, but then beating Kurt Angle. Beating these people that there's no real reason for him to beat. Hot baby faces and heels don't do side quests anymore, where they have this weird storyline for a month where they're facing, like, John, John Cena did do a couple of these, like, uh, with R-Truth and Little Jimmy is the one that comes to mind specifically, where they have these things where you know for a fact they're not going to lose, but at least they're going to, like, learn a new skill and not just get more powerful. Or that they can be redefined in some minor way, or they can add some small, some, some little new aspect to their character. For example, uh, since we did last week's episode, I rewatched the Survivor Series 1998, and that was right after they did the bit where like Vince McMahon gave Mankind the makeover, and Mankind is calling Vince Dad. <laughs> and it's like, that's just a very short, little, quick arc that they did with Mankind, but it really brought out so much more in terms of like showing you really what he could do comedically and showing you that there was like a person behind the monster. So I think that's an example of like a side quest, a diversion in his career that really made kind of a, a big long-term impact. It was really meaningful for him. And in fact, the side quest or side quests are often, at least maybe back in the eighties and nineties, I think, as you say, it's not so much a thing anymore, but the side quests used to be what got a mid Carter ready to be in the main event. You know what I mean? If you look at like all the people that like, Chris Jericho was feuding with in like 1999 and 2000 and stuff. Like he wasn't getting a ton of juicy stuff. He was like doing side quests, but eventually he had such a groundswell underneath him because his side quests had been so good that it was like they couldn't do anything but put him on top. Yeah, exactly. And and you can build these skills because each of those individual situations isn't just you retreading on the same set of things that you've been doing. It's not just grinding what we talked about, but not even the thing that happens in, in Fallout games and, and more so in like a Skyrim kind of game where you end up just doing fetch quests for things where you're literally like you talk to Bob and Bob says, I really want this thing. So you have to go to this store and get that thing. Or go or go to the cave where the monster who guards that thing lurks, fight the monster, get the thing and bring it back. Yeah, and like that 
is not what we're talking about when we talk about side quests. What we're talking about is like Final Fantasy VII has a great side quest where you have to collect all of these things, and I think you have to dress Cloud as a woman, and he has to like. Oh, that's the best. That's one of the best parts of the game. The yeah. wall market part. Hell yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of that game. And that has nothing to do with the end story. Like I don't even remember what the thing is for. You have to you have to meet with Don Corneo in an attempt to find out where Tifa is or something like that. I think yeah, I know, but, but still yeah, it it has almost no bearing on the rest of the game. You go back to Walmart later and encounter those characters again, but like you could excise that whole thing from the game and the game wouldn't really be missing it. Exactly. But it's one of the most fun things in the game, period. Like, it's because it makes you do all of these different things and you learn things in those moments about your character or you're supposed to. And that's what you used to have in wrestling. And now you just have guys, and it's usually guys, because I feel like for the women, they get to do more things. We're going to see it with Becky Lynch, who I have a feeling over the next couple of months, we're going to see her do these little side quests because she has such a strong end goal which is Ronda Rousey at WrestleMania. Like I am actually excited for something to happen because basically what you're going to have with like any other Braun Strowman, for instance, Braun Strowman's just going to beat Brock Lesnar and then have to keep beating guys to keep his title. They're not going to do the fun thing. And this is a perfect example. They're not going to do him with Nicholas winning the tag team championships anymore because he's on the championship, the world championship track now. So he doesn't get to do fun stuff like, and I, you, your mileage may vary on that, but like for me, a great way to build Braun Strowman, even though it hurt the bar, I guess, was to have him beat them. But it's because Braun Strowman's supposed to be like a superhuman monster. But if he's a superhuman monster, you just have to keep piling up bodies in front of him to be able to get him to do stuff that's interesting. And I feel like they should try these side quests with him because he's such a strong character, it would actually just make us like him more. Yeah, definitely. I think that like they've they've done a lot of him, or they did a lot with him a, a year or two ago with the like uh, lifting the ambulances and the trucks and stuff like that. Like they did those like feats of strength, like they used to do with Mark Henry or Andre the Giant or whoever back in the day. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, I think big strong guy is a pretty flat character and like yeah you need the big strong guy to feel like he's accomplished something that you remember and if you're not gonna just like you know rocket him right to the title like they already haven't done you know what i mean then then he definitely needs to be doing he definitely needs to get some accomplishments it's not just enough to be showing up and be strong and win like i mean that that'll only get you so far i think and what's interesting about the Strowman character is there there can be nuance because he's a strong on the mic and by backstage performer, you can have him do these different things. And like I said, with Nicholas, it was like, I really enjoyed the interaction between the two because, and this is something I, I know from coming from a family of tall people. Like my, I am short, I'm five foot nine. Everyone on my dad's side is about six foot five. And there's a way in which they carry themselves that is different than people of average height because you know when you're big, that you have command over the room. Just because if Braun, every room that Braun Strowman has ever walked into, he's one of, been one of the five biggest people in the room. He just has been. And that changes the dynamic. And that dynamic was actually interesting to see him work. And it works with Alexa, too, of, of that different dynamic where it's not like a softer side of the monster among men, but it's a much more like 
realistic human side. Does that make sense? Like you find the nuance and the humanity and the different ideas of a character by putting them in situations where they can't just use the one skill they have over everybody else to propel themselves forward. Yeah, definitely. I I recently reread the book, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, which was the inspiration for the movie Blade Runner with Harrison Ford. And, and I, I, I was struck reading the book again. I hadn't read it since I was in high school. Just how different the Rick Deckard character in the book is from the Rick Deckard character in the movie. And it's like in the book, the character is much more sensitive and like talks a lot about like identifying with the androids and like being attracted to android women and like feeling sympathy and empathy toward androids and stuff, which is, whereas like, in the movie, he's just like a a more stereotyped or more simply drawn kind of like hard-boiled detective character. You know what I mean? Like he's mm-hmm. and, and now I'm just like I, I didn't really realize it until this read through, and I was like, wow, I like the way he's portrayed in the book way more because there's like more thoughtfulness behind it and more. I don't just want to say nuance because that's just such a such a weak catch-all word. But, but there, there's more of his thinking that's given to you. Like the original cut of the movie, a lot of people complain about how there's these voiceovers, there's these expositional voiceovers that he does. But like looking back, having read the book, I almost re- understand why they did that because the book is so much about his mindset. So to bring this all back to Braun Strowman, I think Braun Strowman has that kind of action hero, like, like Arnold is Conan the Barbarian kind of thing where it like looks the part, can execute all the stuff, but what's missing is the psychological depth. And as you say, I think quote unquote side quests are like what really brings that out. That's where you learn like, what is this guy really passionate about? Like, okay, like seeing him with Nicholas, you see that he's gentle. You see that he's like kind to kids, which is like a a whole thing unto itself. You know what I mean? Which not all wrestlers are like that stuff's really, really useful. But when you're seeing him just like tip ambulances and, and win matches and be a quote-unquote monster among men, it's like, eh. There's also only so far you can push that. I mean, he flipped over an ambulance. He flipped over the backstage set. He flipped over a semi-truck. He can't flip over the building. You have to figure out different things for him to do. And if it involves him, like, kind of having a crush on Alexa Bliss and her using that to her advantage because they work together for a couple of the mixed mess challenge. That's fine with me. Like I want him to feel like it, not even a human, but like a character, a three dimensional character with feelings and motivations, not just I, I pick things up and I put them down. And that's kind of what happens in a fallout game is you literally just get to the point to bring it back to fallout uh, of you can just kill everybody. And sometimes that's fun. Sometimes that's like, a fun thing to do where you can like, I could get super nerdy and be like, if you set up your link and repeater correctly in fallout three, you can kill everybody in the game without ever having to do anything other than reload. But like that's, that takes actual strategy and requires you to build all of these different skill sets out and, and perks is what they call them in fallout and, and make your character through deliberate attention to detail into this killing machine. It's not literally just you have the biggest gun and you blow everybody away. Like that kind of stuff doesn't always happen. And I think Fallout, especially Fallout 3, does the best job of restraining that 
But what you see in the latter Fallout games is you can just get to the point where you're so overpowered, there's nothing in the game and you can earn so much money doing things, certain things, that there's no point to the game beyond you completely ruling over everything. And that's just not interesting narrative structure it's just it, there's a reason there there's a hero's journey and there's also a reason why like sequels don't always work out the way that you're supposed they're supposed to and it's it's almost like a like a microcosm of that idea which is and this is something you see with like the survivor series the things that are easiest to replicate and popular that's the key thing. It has to be both of those are the things that move on to the evolution of that that gimmick or that video game or that movie. I think people have real trouble with that only if they've seen the previous iterations. Like the first time you see a Survivor, let's say you, the first Survivor Series met, uh, pay-per-view you saw was like Survivor Series 90, you would think it was awesome. But if the first Survivor Series you saw was 87, you might watch 90 and be like, well, why did they get rid of some of the stuff I like from the previous three and change it so that like only certain things are happening there's a, it's not even nuance it's it like a breath of it's like i'm trying to th- it's filling out the entire sheet and not just the front half I, I i don't know how to put it it's just it's more robust that's what it is there there is more robustness to the earlier versions of these games uh even if technically there isn't as much robustness because it's uh, a text-based game as opposed to a 3d open world yeah, I think that kind of reflects how just the, the general trend in video games away from a linear narrative structure. I think there's been this kind of idea with some of the more recent generation console games that like like we don't we can achieve a lot without a linear structure just like using the capabilities of the hardware. So like we're going to show what we can do. Like I think of like the um, Breath of the Wild, the Legend of Zelda game. Like, Legend of Zelda games have never had, like, strong narratives to them, or most of them haven't. You know what I mean? Like, Wind Waker is a little more nuanced than some of them. Like, uh, Link's Awakening, the Game Boy game, has more of a tight story to it than some of the other ones. But, like, generally, it's just, like, a save the princess, fight the evil wizard, get through the dungeons and get the treasure kind of game. But, like, Breath of the Wild is literally, you can start it, and you can almost immediately go to the last boss if you want to. And But there's also, like, however many temples that you can explore, you know what I mean? And I think that in some ways, the like I said, the, the, the art of making a video game, especially a role-playing game, uh, used to be really about story and character. You look at Chrono Trigger, you look at Final Fantasy VI Flash Three. you know what I mean? The, the kind of, the, the, what are considered the great RPGs of all time. Like when you look at those games, there's this huge focus on character and plot. And that's in part because the hardware wasn't capable of a lot. But now with the hardware capabilities, there's this idea that like you're not held down or you're not tethered by the idea of having to think too much about character and plot. And I think that maybe that's quote unquote creative freedom for for programmers and kind of like hardcore video game fans who are just all about the literal mechanics of the game. But at the same time, it's it's I don't find those games as satisfying in the same way that, as we say, you know, the the best bing, bang, boom, high spot wrestling match uh, with no angle and storyline behind it is never as good as the just OK or the pretty good match that's had months of build. Yeah, 
it's it's something you see over and over again, which is that, and it, I hinted at this earlier, that the evolution of things requires this to happen. It it in terms of like if you want the decisions that are made are not a function of maintaining quality in that moment, but being able to maintain use of the gimmick for as long as possible. And and I feel like in, when you have these, the sequels for fallout, like, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode one and two, and this is something you see a lot are considered like hardcore gaming Like I played a lot of video games I had never heard of Fallout until you introduced me to it. And I'm pretty sure I wasn't alone. And now Fallout is like one of the premier, what they call triple A games out there. It's that, it's Red Dead, it's stuff like this. And it's not just an opening of gaming culture to the mass audience. It's an opening of gaming, of a, a, with all due respect, a niche gaming culture to the wider gaming culture and then eventually to like the tra- transcending both of those, which is where it is now, where like 76 is being touted by the West Virginia Board of Tourism as like a major boon for the state is is that they're going to be featured in a Fallout game, which like when you were playing Fallout 1 and Fallout 2, did you think there was any fucking chance that anything like that was going to happen? Oh, no, certainly not. I mean, they were, and I, I don't mean this in a dismissive way, but I'll put it in air quotes that nobody can see. I mean, they were just games. They were really, really good games, but like it, it wasn't like a whole cultural thing, you know? Yeah, and and what happened with fallout is fallout's one of the lead games of that revolution because it had such a strong background uh such a strong storyline such gravitas and i think that when you look at wrestling you see that a lot uh with tables tables and ladders and chairs is another kind of where yeah Edge and Christian, the Dudley boys, and uh, the Hardy boys always had good matches because, it, and in particular, like the first couple, because they had things that came together to create the TLC match. Like, people forget, but the reason it's a TLC match is because Edge and Christian were doing the concerto, Jeff and Matt Hardy were really good with ladders, and the Dudleys were table people you know what i'm saying like they were their special weapon was tables that's how that match i like how you called them table people that sounds like some sort of like colonial era racial slur for like the indigenous people of a particular very small island in the caribbean they have no respect for caribbean or caribbean there's two acceptable ways to say that word i got caught between them (laughs) uh but yeah while talking about white racism sorry Tangled web we weave. Uh, but you get what I'm saying? Like, the now we have a TLC pay-per-view where they literally just cram feuds into, like, chair matches where the original idea behind it was this really, like, not nuanced again, but robust idea that had real gravitas for the performers. And they propelled that forward using the momentum that they had and the weight that they had from building over years these personalities that lended them to ourselves towards 
the tables, the ladders, and the chairs individually, and then that all combining to create something special. Yeah, definitely. I talked about this in, uh, I think it was our Survivor Series episode, part one. It's it's actually, without without being uh, too far up my own ass, I thought it was one of the, like, best articulations of how I feel that I've ever said. And that's the, one of the problems with the WWE is that like the gimmick matches start, as you say, like really, really making sense when they do something new and it's specifically for these people. And then those people, because they're great performers and because the gimmick makes sense for them, they do great with it and get it over. Then people want to say, oh man, those matches are so good. The TLC matches are so good. The Hell in a Cell matches are so good. I want to see more and more and more. And then all of a sudden, you know, you maybe have some some workers for whom it's not the perfect fit that it was for the originators, you know what I mean? And then there's just this gradual degradation. And yeah, pretty soon it's just like, well, you know, uh, we have a Hell in a Cell pay-per-view because the Hell in a Cell gimmick is over and people want to see the Hell in a Cell matches. There's this gradual degradation of just everything from like something that's really special and and just for the performers who it really works for until it becomes just like a thing where it's like oh the the gimmick is over people like the cell people like tlc and you can just plug in whoever the fuck because the concept is over and people know they're going to see a bunch of bombs yeah and there are things for which that is not necessarily the case like uh money in the bank i actually think for the most part has maintained its charm for me that to me is a different idea, even though it's very explicitly like tied to Chris Jericho. It's also not it. Chris Jericho didn't win the first one. It wasn't based on Chris Jericho's like natural ability at climbing ladders. It was just a fun idea for him to be in a match where there's a chance he could win a title shot, but like edge wins it. Cause he's the ultimate, like you can fit characters into that, narrative because the narrative itself is so strong with like tables ladders and chairs the narrative behind that is tables ladders and chairs are fun people like table ladders and chairs like that and then you got to make the requisite uh wizard of oz joke every time every fucking time (laughs) you got to say oh my It, it doesn't count you have to say oh my every time someone says tables and ladders and chairs (laughs) i feel like you're come on you gotta say it i set you up uh, oh my. There we go. God, some some people. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and, and I think that it's difficult. It, it's not something that's intentional. Like, and I think there's there's other stuff behind with Fallout, this transition from, and it's not just technology. It's literally like different companies doing it. It might be Interplay. And then it's um, Bethesda now does the games for Fallout. Yeah, Interplay was also, I was talking earlier about Baldur's Gate. Interplay also did the Baldur's Gate series. That's why there were a lot of similarities there in, in the first couple. As someone who's only played the latter games, I fucking love, especially 3 and and uh, New Vegas are two of my favorite games of all time. I think what happened with Fallout 4 is that they couldn't, subvert themselves anymore and i think that's really when you need to revamp something is when you can't you've done all of the subversions of the thing or they've been done in the space that you're in you kind of have to like they would let's say all of the different permutations you could think of for the money in the bank contract had happened. And I think we're getting close. I think we're reaching like 50% capacity on that. And in 10 years, we'll probably be having this discussion, hopefully maybe like on a television show on a network, but we'll be having this discussion in 10 years. 
about like man the money in the bank contract like officially sucks now in the way that the royal, <laughs> the royal rumble match too and i Ugh, i'm not over it i'm sorry i know i i'm i the royal rumble was my favorite thing and i gotta say that money in the bank is a big part of 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 kind of draining some of the whatever out of the royal rumble that's a whole other conversation continue <laughs> which we'll be having in january right yeah right just just wait folks for me with fallout 4 is it like it couldn't do that and it couldn't be an entirely other thing, right? Like it couldn't quite, and that's what it feels like playing for a couple of hours uh, Fallout 76 is it feels like what Fallout 4 wanted to do but was too afraid to actually cut the previous universe of Fallout games uh, completely off. And I think this one does that. It gets rid of I don't know if we mentioned this earlier in the episode, but it gets rid of non-playable characters. So now everything is done through mechanisms that were already in the game, but they're now relying more heavily on. And I think that's in part because it's really hard to create in the context of this open world, an interesting narrative that doesn't de- that doesn't suffer from the first problem we mentioned, which is that like, we need you to win problem. And I, I feel like, for four, they both had the problem where you can become so overpowered you can just finish all the story, like finish everything you need to finish very easily without having any kind of problems in the way that you have in the first quarter of the game. Uh, but also don't have the thing that uh, actually Red Dead Redemption does really well, which is, yeah, you have this this storyline and you have side quests and sometimes both of those get boring and sometimes you want to just like go fucking fish. And like Red Dead Redemption 2 is really a fun fishing game and it's also a fun poker game and it's also and that's actually what new vegas did well is they there was these mini games and there was these games within the games that would require you to uh, more or less develop skills that were useful basically outside the context of the video game like gamification gets complicated, but you're being like incentivized in a way that you don't realize, but you're also like gaining actual skills as opposed to being like better at being able to shoot people in the head. In Fallout 4, the closest they come is the ability to like build out settlements, but it's so um, restricted that they couldn't, they were just stuck between two worlds. And I think that's honestly less so than the, I think the Survivor series is actually because and i think it's it's partially that you can there's because there's four and five people on each team there's so many different permutations you can do where like when you have the single thing like for instance uh uh, royal rumble it's just that one person that's winning's narrative no other narrative really lasts in a meaningful way past the year that the narrative happens right like the only time that there's an expiration date for really good rumble performances that aren't victories. And it's that year's WrestleMania where like, if you have a really great rumble performance and you win, you are set for life. Yeah, definitely. I I was just about to qualify what you said uh, by saying, well, it'll get you to WrestleMania, but then you qualified it yourself. (laughs) I mean, you can do a a perfectly good short arc storyline that starts, you know, between two mid carters at at the Royal Rumble and, uh, you know, it's on the first hour of the WrestleMania show. Like, you can totally do that. Or you can, you know, you can have the, they did this a lot in, like, the late 80s, early 90s, where two people who were already in a feud, like uh, Jake Roberts, right? There's the, like, two red people who are already in a feud 
who maybe the heels got away from the baby face earlier in the show. Then the baby face gets a second shot at him in the Royal Rumble. Like you can use it effectively, but I agree. You have to either be like servicing an already existing feud or you need to be like just getting to WrestleMania. Yeah. And, and that's the problem with the Royal Rumble where you don't have these, where the narrative can be about in a way that I, I, it's just difficult to do with the Royal Rumble you can have, for instance, Cody can win the Money in the Bank contract and then feud or lose it to Damian Sando and then feud with Damian Sando over it. Even that has like this release valve for things not getting too stale for that one person getting. And I think it's in particular, like I said, why the Survivor Series has almost out of any gimmick, as far as, out of any gimmick in wrestling, as far as I'm concerned, has kind of had the most um, sustained level of quality like it's not at the heights so it, it, it's reached highs and lows but the highs aren't as high as everything else but the lows also aren't as low as a lot of other things like there's very rarely an actively horrible survivor series match i can name like five actively really bad <laughs> yeah definitely and how many of them had, took place over the last five years nick <laughs> no exactly and they're an hour long and with the Survivor Series, I mean, yeah, you have 45-minute matches, but they're usually good. They don't waste the 45-minute matches on shit. And, like, every Royal Rumble, just like every single stupid mission you have to do in Fallout 4 to, like, get to the end stage of the game, it's just literally you're mowing down people to get to that point as opposed to trying to survive, which was kind of the point of 3 and 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 New Vegas, which is kind of like a in-between sequel. Um those are both games where you look at them and you say like i can survive in this game and have that be the game in and of itself while i'm also trying to figure out the storyline like and i think fallout 4 lost that because they were stuck between two worlds like the royal rumble has to be completely revamped or they have to get rid of it as far as i'm concerned because it's just a bad event now it is an event where they basically have to structure the entire thing around roman reigns not getting booed and like, and and like <laughs> that that may change if he uh, when he comes back. But like, that was basically what it was for the past couple of years. And now, like, it's going to whoever is going to win. If it's not Daniel Bryan or Braun Strowman, people are going to boo, and they're not going to want them to boo. They're going to want them to have like, and it's probably going to be babyface, and they're going to want them to cheer. But like, it's not going to happen because we've seen all of the different narratives you can create for this linear storyline through a single match, even if you don't necessarily know, even if you try to make it open world and you don't know how he's going to get from point A to point C to point D to point Z, like you have an idea that he's going to get from point A to point Z and everything else in between is kind of like cannon fodder for just finishing the game as it were. Yeah, definitely. It's that moment in the middle of the Royal Rumble where it's like, I don't know, usually sometimes it's like the 20, 25 minute mark where you're like, God, I don't give a fuck about this. <laughs> you know, like like that that's, has been like a huge problem. I agree with the Royal Rumbles, especially increasingly that there's always just a 10 minute window where you're like, I don't care. You know, and, and I, I I think it it's really killing me to, to hear what you're saying about the, the Royal Rumble just being really flattened out and, and kind of out of juice because it, it was when I was, when I was younger, uh, just my favorite thing because, you know, it's like everybody in one match, what's not to like uh, from a simplistic point of view, you know, but, but I, I really do have to agree, especially as you explain it, that, you know, over the last five years, like you said, it's, it's become all about 
trying to get the fans not to boo Roman Reigns uh, specific, pretty specifically. But, but I think it's because so many people loved the match so much, like I did, and, and, and it had been good for so many years, or at least, like you said, there had been new things to do for so many years, that I think one of the reasons people are so harsh on the Rumble now is because they, they remember what it was when it was used really effectively, and they were excited about that. So it's like when people boo Roman Reigns doing well in the Royal Rumble, it's like they're booing Roman Reigns, but they're also booing the way that the Royal Rumble used to make people getting really cheapened. You yeah, know? the commodification of the Royal Rumble in the same way. That's a good way of saying it. And and like I said, once again, the idea that like, well, the gimmick is over and we can plug whoever in. The Royal Rumble winner is over. So we can take someone, whoever we put in there, that's going to make them over, even if people hate them. Yeah, and I, you kind of, again, get the feeling with Fallout 4 when you're playing it. You're just like, I don't give a fuck who this guy's dad is or kid is. I don't care. I don't care. I liked when the game made me feel like I was doing something of value to keep myself alive. It no longer does that. It is now just fetch and return stuff. It is just trying to mow people down. It has become not a parody of itself, but a skeleton ver- skeletized version of itself in terms of you can just kind of see where all of the bone structure is and you can see how it moves in a way that it's not, you're not supposed to be able to like see the individual joints creak and you totally can because it's been like so streamlined as a game that any of the, the fun flab of it is just completely gone. When I look back, I talked about like Chrono Trigger and Final Fantasy VI slash three earlier, right? As like two of the greatest, best RPGs of all time. And there's just blatantly silly, pointless stuff in both of them, but it's like really memorable. You know what I mean? Like the, the weird aspects of like the Ted Woosley translation of Final Fantasy three or whatever. Like there's just like silly things in the game. Like, when Kefka yells at one of the soldiers to clean the, the sand off of his boots. Like, it's just a throwaway line in the game, but it's like this hugely memorable moment. And I think that there's, as, as creators, whether they're video game creators or wrestling uh, presenters, however you want to put it, in the 21st century, uh, I think that there's there's been this idea, uh, this kind of like, uh, quasi or pseudo scientific, pseudo data minded, pseudo scientific, pseudo data minded idea that like you just got to figure out, you've got to identify the the three or four or five things that people really like and just hammer the shit out of those and all the little stuff in the middle be damned. Like, that, but for me, as I've said over and over, both in this episode and just I think generally in the show, like. It's usually the small stuff that's really memorable. And like everybody can say, oh yeah, that's a great game. Like, oh yeah, Final Fantasy VI is a great game. Oh yeah, Chrono Trigger is a great game. But like everybody can have a different part of the game because there's so much to it. There's so many different moments. There's so many different combinations of like moves and abilities that you can create and all the different side quests that you can either choose to do or not do and the secret characters that you can choose to get or not get. Like it creates a lot of room for people to have individualized experiences. And so it's funny that like, as there's been this progression towards more open-ended, open-world concepts, I think a lot of that detail work has fallen away, which is ironic because like 
that's what the open concept game should be relying on, there being as many options as possible. And I think, to Fallout's credit, like Fallout 3, I remember, was really one of the best games at that, where like everything you did felt meaningful. It influenced either your character's development or what stuff you could or couldn't do later in the game. And you mentioned Baldur's Gate as part of that idea right that it oh yeah definitely definitely like Baldur's Gate 2 like I said this is like my favorite PC game which I'm like I'm not the I've never been the biggest PC gamer but but that is my fave but I mean like both both Baldur's Gate and Fallout have these like alignment systems which I really really love where you know like there's the Dungeons and Dragons we've talked about it before the idea of you know people being like you know chaotic evil lawful evil neutral evil uh, chaotic neutral true neutral neutral good lawful good uh, did I say lawful, neutral, you know what I mean? Uh, et cetera, et cetera, chaotic, good, so on and so forth. Uh, but like your actions in the game act, you know, directly influence that. And in Baldur's Gate 2, there's kind of like a good character path and a bad character path. And there's a lot of flexibility within them. But I think what Fallout 3 did is the, like it made like every granular thing you did count. Whereas like in Baldur's Gate, it's like, I don't know, if you senselessly killed good aligned characters, then of course your reputation goes down and the cost of stuff in the stores goes up. Like that's a pretty simple, straightforward mechanic. But in Fallout 3, I thought that that, that sense of control that you had over the character and their like perception and the way they interacted in the world was was really really great and was kind of wrestling-y where there was like this whole scope of like baby face and heel and it's not just like there's one kind of baby face and there's one kind of heel it's like you know you are either on some level a good guy or a bad guy or just the guy i guess pause for laughter and I, I think for the Fallout, literally every single thing you do has a positive or negative effect on your karma. But it's some of it's so subtle that it doesn't really like. Let's say you had a hundred uh, point, you had a fifty is neutral, a hundred is good, and zero is bad. Every single thing you do, any interaction you have, anytime you take something from somewhere either gives you like a slight positive or a slight negative. And then if you steal from something, something, someone in front of them, you get like a big negative drop off. Like, I, I think they figured out the way to do that using the technology of the system to calculate all of that shit constantly, which is something that older games can do. Like, and I think what, what might be weird for people listening to this and this is something we talked about during the Survivor series, is that these games are objectively better than their predecessors. Like, Fallout 4 is a better, more fully realized world in which you can do many, many more things than you could have ever imagined in the first two games. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's better. It means it's new and different. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that... That difference really, yeah, like speaks to wrestling and speaks to the kind of different ways that people view wrestling or are fans of wrestling now. Like there's definitely like if you are on Twitter or the, the social needs where people talk about wrestling, it's like there's there's this one camp of like what's going on right now is objectively the best and most exciting wrestling of all time and therefore the most meaningful and and then and then on the other end there's like there's there's whole enclaves of people on social media who are only there to talk about vintage wrestling you know what i mean so i definitely think that 
both video games and wrestling are currently going through this identity crisis where like half the people are focusing on the new and like what's the new functionality, what wasn't possible before that we're doing now. And other people are like, well, what can we learn from the stuff of the past? And it seems like there's very little in the middle, which is kind of troublesome both for wrestling and, and for video game development. I think what you'll see long-term is a shift away from the direct commodification of video games and wrestling, because I think as you become, as the industry gets more nuanced, or I guess it, it allows for a bunch of different people to have a bunch of different games that they want, you can, that hold that it has over, like the commodification loses a lot of its value because just people aren't going to buy as much because they can watch they don't want to watch wrestling at WWE. They, they can watch literally whatever they want. They can watch MLW or Capital Wrestling or something like that. And I, I think that's where it's going to go is you're going to see like them actually use the technology to its full capability without also just trying to shear it down to its most aerodynamic parts. I think I know the answer to this, but which wrestling character do you think would best survive in the Fallout universe? Wow, that's a really uh, that's a really out there question. Um, I feel like it has to be some kind of like crazy deathmatch wrestler. I feel like it's got to be like Sammy Callahan. I feel like between his like his getup and his whole personality and his style and his uh, propensity for forming gangs of lackeys who who cause trouble, I think he would be a a great personality in the in the Fallout universe. Notice I did not say Dean Ambrose. <laughs> well, that's because you knew I was going to say Dean Ambrose. No, actually, I think it's uh, Terry Funk. I feel like Terry Funk would b not be like the lone survivor. He would be like the head raider. <laughs> He'd be the wear one wearing like somebody's head as a hat. Oh, yeah. That, that's how I was picturing Callahan as well. Definitely. He's not the protagonist of the game. He's, he's definitely one of the one of the guys you're fighting. <laughs> um, so do you have anything to plug this week? Well, as always, people can follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. Uh, also, I just want to take this time to put out a little friendly reminder uh, to folks that if you're listening this and you uh, you enjoy the show or if you like it even just a little bit enough to give it five stars, of course, uh, we'd really appreciate if you would rate and review our podcast. Uh, that helps us uh, grow our audience and uh, connect with new people and all sorts of good things like that. Also, uh, another thing that you can do that's really simple, it's even simpler than rating and reviewing, really, is just, you know, tell a friend or two. If you have some other folks uh, who you like to talk about wrestling or other pop culture bullshit with, uh, let them know that this podcast exists. Tell them about how wrestling explains the world and uh, tell them about how stinking great it is. But don't tell them about how I'm always begging for your money because then they won't listen. <laughs> so uh, do me a solid this week. Follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. And uh, tell your friends, rate and review, five stars. And you can check us out at HowWrestlingExplains.Podbean.com. You can check me out at The Nixter. That's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-R. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's about it. Uh, did you have any more information on Pocket Cast this week? Uh, no, I thought that I really, I was really pleased with myself last week. And then they did the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids joke on SNL. And I like, my heart just sank because I was just like, oh Jesus, people are going to think that I stole that joke from Saturday Night Live. But I swear, I swear that we recorded that on Friday night or Thursday night it was even. So several days before that joke aired on television. Uh, but not the drainer and the strainer joke. 
I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart I have but one desire. And that one is you, no other will do. I've lost all ambition for worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. And with your admission that you feel the same, I'll have reached the goal I'm dreaming of, believe me, I don't set the changes. Fight your tongue secure in the problem. 